Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Actung, actung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland. No owl today, sadly. Um, and one of the um, great advantages of knowing directors of museums and, and being friends of theirs is that you get sneak previews of very exciting new exhibitions and an exciting new permanent exhibition. That's what we're looking at today at our friend of the show, the National Army Museum, and I'm here with my old pal Justin Macheski, who is indeed the director of the uh, museum, and Sophie Staffy, who is the creator of this particular exhibition. You know, both of you, thank you so much for, for the invite and for letting us have this sneak preview. Obviously, there's a lot of Second World War in this museum, but absolutely not. It's a big sweep of history, and I think it's important... Um, for us occasionally to go off piece, you know, we've done that with the Falklands, we've done it with Rourke's Drift. Of course, everything that came before the Second World War and the British Army feeds into what was happening in the Second World War and what happened in the Second World War feeds into what, what follows. So I don't think it's, um, I think it's entirely relevant and appropriate that we are here today and looking at it not just from the Second World War bits, but also back to the war of the Spanish succession, wars against France from 1700s to the 1820s. Yeah, we, we like wars against France, uh, historically, James, as you know. Um, um, and uh, although our, ally- we, our alliances uh, change through history, uh, our involvement in Europe goes right the way back to the, the first decades of the British Army in the, in the, uh, in the late uh, 17th century. And so here we are in the Conflict in Europe gallery, um, and it fits within the, uh, the context of the army's three really enduring roles in our history, in our story, uh, in, our, in our island story. And a lot of people think that governments change defence policy and governments change you know, the size and shape of an army and what the army does. The truth is, when you look at the long sweep of history, the British army has three roles. Uh, role number one is defending our island home. Yep. And it might be against COVID. It might be uh, the Home Guard in the Second World War. Mm-hmm. It might be against the Jacobites in the 17th uh, and 18th uh, century. Um, it might be the IRA. It might be Islamic right. terrorism. The second role of the army is fighting in Europe against um, uh, powers that want to dominate the continent. Um, we work with allies. Uh, we never do anything on our own in Europe. We always no. work with allies. Uh, the allies change. Uh, but um, 
Coalitions uh, are very much our thing. They are because I mean historically, uh, in, except for the Second World War, which I know is the is the kind of hot topic of uh, of, of we have ways. We, we never do anything in Europe without allies because our army's not been big enough to bring stability back to the whole of Europe. To bring stability back to the whole of Europe, and if you like, that's that's kind of the historic calling of of our army through history, and it's a story we need to explore in its full depth. Yeah. Um, uh, so that's why we're going right the way back to the early 18th century. So there's home defence, defence of Europe, and then the... And the global, the global role. Uh, I mean, there are 194 nations in the uh, United Nations, I think. It changes a bit. Uh, But uh, the last time I looked, I think it was 194. And I think we've deployed to all but about 16 of those uh, in our history. I mean, there is no country in the world that has deployed soldiers in formed groups to so many parts of the world. So we have a global gallery which looks at that story. And so as we're transforming the museum, we're going to have three galleries that look at the global, the European and the home role of the army. The home gallery will be open in September. And then we want to look at soldiers themselves. You know, who are these people? Why do they volunteer? Because the other thing, uh, James, is, is, is that for the majority of our history, as you know, uh, we've been an army of volunteers. Yep. Um, only having conscription during the First and Second World War. And yeah, the first those World are War, only two times. Only two times, with a little bit in the Cold War uh, at the end of the Second World War. But it's a remarkable story. So we want to talk about the soldiers as well. But in this gallery today, we really want to look at Europe. And so we've got lots of things out of our collection that have been in our store um, uh, to, to tell this story and unfold it for those that come to visit. So, so Sophie, when you're kind of putting to, you, you know, you're created that you've created this and, and when you're putting it together, I mean, I know you've got this huge warehouse, haven't you, in Stevenage? That's right. Uh, and Stevenage is sort of full of, um, of just a huge number of artefacts. I mean, how do you choose? Obviously, certain things, you know, sell themselves. But, but how do you start? Is it, is it literally a blank sheet of paper? Kind of. It's narrative-led, but also object-led. So you will see in the narrative that we have chosen that I've sometimes tried to highlight certain areas, either because they're really interesting or because we have really incredible objects to tell the story um, of that particular aspect of the conflict. But it was a little bit of a Sophie's choice. Yeah. Not in a good way. I had to leave out lots of amazing objects. And presumably we're starting in the 1700s because there wasn't a British army before that. Uh, that's right. Uh, I mean, the British an English ar- army. There's an English army. I mean, it, we, we trace our history back to 1660 with the Restoration. But really, uh, it's, it's not really until later that the, the, you know, the British army really uh, comes to life. Um, in terms of scale, it's a glorious revolution in 1689 when the army really grows. Yeah. Um, and then obviously in due course, the Irish and, British, and the Scottish regiments come into what becomes the British army. Yeah. But our real... And that's part of the national story, of course. And that's and, part of the national and, and story. And post-1660, you know, it's a sort of uh, exchange of guns in the Medway, but it's not yeah. actually on the continent, are we? No, that's right. And it's really... It's really um, you know, when William comes to the throne at the Growth Revolution, that, that he really begins to think, hmm, we've got a, a lot of potential here with, with this country and, and the soldiers it can produce. And so the British army really, really grows in 1689. Yeah, and also out of the new model army under Cromwell's time. Exactly. Uh, Some of those regiments. After seven, civil war, you've also got the suddenly this sort of new professionalism coming into it. Yes, absolutely. And, um, and we really then make our first forays onto the continent of Europe as a regular army uh, in those last years of the 17th and first years of the 18th century, like the, you know, the wars of Marlborough, John Churchill, yeah, yeah. Uh, where we really kind of make our name and our infantry, above all, makes its name on the battlefields uh, of Europe. And so we've got you know, a wonderful uh, portrait here of, the, of um, 
of the Battle of Blenheim. Um, and, yeah, it's um, amazing painting. It's an amazing it? painting. So, so, uh, I should just say this is you know this is a really big painting. This must be about you know six foot wide, four and a half foot high, something like that. And, and it's got it's got the full glory of the of the early redcoats, if you like, uh, mm. uh, you know, firing their muskets. And there's one little bit of this painting I'd love to bring out, which is there's a coach on the on the right hand yes, side here, sort of center center right hand side. Yeah, and there's a, there's a there's a French field marshal in the back of that coach. He's been no. taken prisoner by the Duke of Marlborough. Wow. We have his uniform downstairs. Is this Marlborough here? That's Marlborough. And this French field marshal has been taken prisoner. We have his uniform downstairs. And of course, it's the only field marshal's uniform that's really survived because the revolution in France took place, you know, 85 yeah. years later and all these uniforms were dis- destroyed. So we have the most perfect uh, Isn't that incredible? Uh, uh, French field marshal's uniform captured on the battle, uh, battlefield of, of Blenheim. This is the brown best as well, isn't it? That is, that is the brown best. So if you do it, when would that brown bess is from, is that from the early 18th century or? Yeah, that's from the 18th century. Um, But it did stay in British service for like that type of weapon stayed for a very, very long time in British service. It served them right. So uh, the brown bess was a standard issue musket. It's not a rifle because the barrel isn't rifled. The rifle gives you greater range and accuracy. So these muskets are, you know, you don't really want to be firing much more than about sort of 50 yards. 50 yards tops. Um, they're not accurate. You know, if you can do three loadings a minute, you're doing quite well. I mean, they're a, they're a, they're a fiddle and a faff. But, of course, you know, until technology moves up, you know, you stick with what you've got because it works. Um, it's really the Baker rifle that kind of transforms things, and that comes into the, into the Napoleonic period. And, James, you've got one of those over here, actually. So ah, if, we go, if we walk over here to the very good. Sort of Napoleonic section, yep. you know, we have some of those... So those sort of oh yes, look, and, he, and here's here's, and here's Sharp's jacket. Here's Sharp's jacket. That's an original, ninety um, fifth rifles jacket from you know the first year uh, of of the regiment's formation uh, in eighteen hundred. That's a Baker rifle with yep. the, with a sword bayonet that would have attached to it, and that's an original bugle um, uh, of, yes. the, of the ninety fifth rifles. So uh, and the rifles those, always have the bugles, don't they? As their, as as their symbol today. Th- th- this this very distinctive uh, dark green uniform really comes again from from sort of German hunting green yes. uh, that's, that's used yeah, in North yeah, America yes. by certain uh, regiments and indeed in the, in the British the King's German Legion. Um, yep. And it comes into our, our military DNA. Uh, and, and the green jackets emerge out of this, don't they? And the green jackets emerge out of this. The rifle Now brigade, back into the rifles again. Now back into the rifles. And it's, so, so we wanted to get that out on display. Uh, oh, and one of the things that you really strikes you about the Baker rifle compared to the Brown Bess is the Brown Bess is you know, literally double the length. Yes. I mean, it's a huge beast, isn't it? Whereas this is... This is you know, the equivalent of a carbine to a to a musket to, to, to a to a rifle in the you know the Second World War or something. I mean, it's it's so much smaller, so much lighter, so much more manoeuvrable. I don't know. Can you you can you can fire it fire it more rapidly than a no, brown bess? No, no, no. The, the, it's even more, more slowly, fiddle. more of a fiddle. So really, one one and a half a minute, I think, is is the rate of fire, which is why they always used riflemen with light infantrymen. So the light right. infantrymen had the muskets. They had the got you. They had the um, the, the rate of fire. These guys had the accuracy with the rifle, so it was a combination of muskets and rifles that work work best. Which is why in the rifle in the light uh, division in in Spain, uh, you had uh, the forty third and fifty second light infantry with muskets, and then right. you had the rifle the ninety fifth rifles with with um, with with the Baker rifle. Uh, this combination. And, and this is a French eagle, is it? No. This is the jingling Johnny. It's an a musical instrument that was huh. used in the Middle East mainly. It's also called the um, Turkish Crescent. So quite a few right. French regiments captured some of them. Right. Then they surmounted them with eagles. Ah. And they used them in battle 
So this one was captured in Salamanca by the Cornot Rangers from um, right. from a French infantry regiment. But it's quite fun. Uh, yes, it's mechanical. All these it's got a sort bells, of thing that winds yeah. and, and you twist cogs the and handle, stuff. and yeah. then it turns around. Then it makes a noise with all the bells. Well, Al would be very happy to see this drum. You've got the drummer boy here, and you've got um, a traditional. You know, obviously, drumming was how you. Time the marching, but also for signals, wasn't it? I think was absolutely, that right? absolutely. He, he said that's a yeah, that's a lovely original, original, original drum. And of course, here we have you know Sir John Moore, one of the great heroes of the Napoleonic War. We have yes. his sash, we have his sword, we have Amazing. his watch, his telescope, and the, and the very famous portrait of him. Yeah. And you know that was a sash. And that's that, the original portrait. That's the original portrait, mm. and that's the the sash that he wore uh, on campaign. God, it's beautiful. Uh, I mean, it's in beautiful condition. Beautiful I mean, condition. almost. Man. It's got a few sort of a few kind of threads loose, but otherwise, is in it's perfect in, condition. Look closer, you can see all the blood stains because <gasps> it was the one that he used, yes, he can. was wearing when he was injured at Corona, yes. and also the one that they used to lay him into his grave. Amazing. So, it, this is a, as close as you get to a religious icon, a religious, um, um, yes, uh, in the British uh, Army. Yeah, it is absolutely, uh, it, it is, it is really uh, an extraordinary uh, piece of uh, uh, material that, that lowered the body of Sir John Moore into the tomb absolutely amazing. What, a, what an artifact to have! Uh, it's an amazing, it's an amazing, it's a relic actually. And then, of course, we have. Some so we're turning around. We've now got a, we've got now got a big case of of incredible um, Napoleonic artifacts. The first one is a, is a Highlander kilt and the Shaco. And Again, all all contemporary. All, none of this is you know. It's, this is all worn at the battle or worn at the time. Um, a bloodied glove. Yeah, this is the um, saw that was used to amputate um, the um, Earl of Oxford's um, leg when it was shattered by <laughs> oh a cannonball. God. So the bloodied glove and the bloodied handkerchief was used by his aide-de-camp. But the glove is, is really grim because it's absolutely covered in blood. Obviously, it's, it's, it's dark brown now. But the saw just looks like a... It, it looks like you're, you know, a fine saw that you would have still. Uh, you know, I've got a metal saw, which is, looks just like it, to be perfectly honest. I mean, it's unbelievably grim, isn't it? It is. And he was, but apparently he was very calm during the amputation. And considering that there was no anesthetic back then, yeah. apparently his heartbeat didn't change. And he was making jokes and saying that I've been a good lo- the good-looking man for a long time, so it's somebody, it's somebody else's turn now to take my place. Um, but yeah, it looks a little bit wow. blunt, this all. Yeah, that looks horrible. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing, amazing, uh, amazing object. And then, of course, um, as we come down, we've, we've got, again, some uh, extraordinary... Uh, French eagle. French eagle captured. Which, this is the eagle that... Um, was captured by the Household Cavalry, which is why they, uh, the, uh, the Blues and Royals wear the eagle on their uniform. It's That's the eagle uh, that was captured at Waterloo. Amazing. Um, and, you've, got and this, a, you've got a, and that's presumably the Imperial Guard, is it? Imperial Guard, yeah. um, um, sort of bearskin. This is the cloak worn by Wellington during the campaign the, you know, the, against Napoleon in 1815. That is just breathtaking. And, it, and it's a fine coat too, isn't it? Look at that. Got a lovely kind of, sort of soft felt, um, dark br- chocolate brown collar big brass flat fronted buttons navy blue so when i was a boy i had um my my father bought at some auction it's called wellington at waterloo and it was a big it, it was i think it was a it was a print but it was a it's an old school print so it had no glass in front of it but it was big and framed it was you know sort of three foot by two and a half or something like that and it was all the guys standing up and watching him as he's, he's, he's coming forward on his horse. 
and he's wearing that coat, that cloak, or a cloak like it. And so for me, that just takes me right back to my childhood, my kind of early love of history, you know, lying out, you know, he said sort of, you know, when I was sort of, you know, six or seven, I'd sort of line out all the kind of Napoleonic soldiers and knock them over with marbles and stuff with the picture of Wellington at Waterloo overlooking. Amazing. Yeah. No, it's, it's true. I mean, there was actually an airfix um, um, set which had there Wellington was. and his staff. And of course, he is wearing a cloak like that yeah. in, in that. I mean, the, How fabulous. I mean with the weather, really the weather, brilliant. the weather, the, as it was the, the night before the battle, you can imagine him wearing that cloak. And then this is the skeleton of Marengo, um, yeah. Napoleon's horse, you know, um, which became a celebrity when it came to England after the Battle of Waterloo. Um, the French wanted to borrow it a few years ago to, to have by the tomb of, of Napoleon. Um, and um, it's too fragile to move to France. But they came over and 3D imaged it. And then they built a replica, uh, 3D printed a replica, it's which was very good. And that's, that stood there suspended over the tomb of, uh, of Napoleon for the, huh. the, the bicentenary of his death. But, you know, that is, a, again, you know, an extraordinary thing to have, really. Um, and uh, that probably one of the most famous war horses in history, uh, Marengo. Well, we, we, we've now turned around and we're now looking at the world-famous diorama of Waterloo, which I remember seeing as a boy uh, when I visited the museum. And what I had appreciated is that this was created 15 years after the battle. I mean, I literally thought this was a sort of, you know, made in 1960 or something. But, but it's, a, it's a piece of history in its own right. It is, James. I mean, it was Colonel Seiborn, um was the officer who sort of put this together. He interviewed hundreds and hundreds of, uh, of veterans of the battle to piece this together. Uh, the soldiers were, were cast in, in lead in Dublin, you know, by a jeweller in Dublin. And he spent, um, you know, years making this model. Um, and it was really, un- it was unveiled to sort of celebrate the, the battle, almost a gift to Wellington. I mean, Wellington was sort of the, the most important guest when they unveiled this model. And um, when it was unveiled, Wellington was most displeased that there were so many Prussians on the model. And so he asked the Prussians, <laughs> Prussians to be removed. So if you look into the top right-hand corner of the model, James, you'll see an empty quarter yes. of the model. That was full of Prussians. Um, right. And uh, Colonel Seiborn uh, was told to remove them because uh, Wellington said this was this was my battle. Um, so in a way, it's kind of an early an early example of fake news. Yeah, um, that's very interesting um, because because the Prussians aren't there, but but it's very faithful about the topography of the battlefield yeah. and also where the regiments were because it was done from first hand accounts. But what is interesting is that poor Seiborn, after losing Wellington's favour, he lost also his um, funding. Right. So he decided to pay for himself to finish it right he ended up with an enormous debt which he could never recuperate and he ended up dying penniless and very ill but topographically it's absolutely unbelievable and since the lion mount was created because the topography changed this is the most accurate topographical representation of the battlefield the way it was we worked with some archaeologists, and they had um, they superimposed a current Google map over the cyber model, and the lines aligned perfectly. Isn't that amazing? Well, I think what we'll do is we'll just take a short break here, having got to got to eighteen fifteen, um, and <laughs> and we'll pick up the story and do the next century and a half. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. 
I am just praying to God. This is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland, with Justin Machesky and Sophie Staffy here at the National Army Museum. And we've just said goodbye to the Napoleonic Wars, and we're now at the Crimean War. And, of course, you know, you've got this wall of photographs. It's the first time, really, that a war has been photographed. It's the first time you have sort of war correspondents sending dispatches kind of more or less in, in real time. But um, it's, it's often sort of forgotten, isn't it, the Crimean War? It is a little bit, but it was um, a major conflict. Um, But because it is within the 100-year period after Waterloo, where apparently nothing happened (laughs) in the British Army, it's not exactly the case. It was much calmer, but Crimea was um, a test for the British Army, let's put it like that, because it hadn't seen proper service um, since Waterloo, and uh, things had moved on, obviously. Yes weaponry, tactics, um, and everything else. But you can see here a couple of, um, are like, gems. Um, so this is the actual order that launched the Charge of the Light Brigade. No! Yeah. The very real order. That's the, yeah, that's the real order. Yeah, it says, Lord Raglan wishes the cavalry to advance yeah. rapidly to the front. Wow. Following Follow the enemy. To try to prevent the enemy carrying away the guns. Amazing. And How behind you can see Louis Nolan's cloak. Um, and of course, he was famously associated with the charge of the Light Brigade, yes. having carried the order. Um, this cloak apparently was given, um, he had lent this particular cloak to um, Russell, the journalist. Right. Um, so it was in Russell's possession when Nolan actually rode. Um, at the charge. There is just so much history here. I mean, of course there is, but, but you know, this is the National Army Museum, so obviously you're going to have this stuff, but it is still incredible to see it, isn't it? It really, really is. Well, James, I mean, I'm really glad uh, that 
to be able to sort of show you around and show you what we've got here. And we're now in the First World War Gallery. Mm. Um, and um, Amazing display this. So, so what I say, sort of central, completely, um, there's a sort of rectangular glass case with a field gun in it and lots of small arms suspended from the roof and, and very effective it is too it's sort of damien hurst meets uh, meets the first world war yeah almost right. the way it's all displayed uh, with the uh, all suspended we wanted to show here the kind of evolution of of and the innovation in in uh, uh, in military technology during the during the first world war and the weapons and also just the viciousness of of trench warfare if you yep. look up if, 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 if you look up at the top uh, the, on the left here you'll see a sword a very straight sword yeah uh, you know that's the last sword ever designed for war so that's the end of, you know, a 10,000-year story. And then right below it is a Luger. And then right below it's a Luger. And then before you, you go down there, the machine guns. So you see this sort of transition from yes. sort of sharpening swords in 1914 to using machine guns to, 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 to rifle grenades, to, uh, you know, to, to all the other, you know, to automatic weapons uh, that, that start appearing. And then you've also got medieval weapons. Here. Yeah, the, 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 the trench, spike club. The, the spike club, which, you know, some... some Soldiers used to hang on their on their walls at home uh, after the First World War to sort of show they'd been in the trenches and <sighs> done raids and stuff. So, so we want to show the sort of innovation. Everything here is obviously original. So, you know, we've still got the mud yep. on some of the uniforms that are, that yeah, are here. Yeah, amazing. Two things here, James. This yep. one is um, uh, the first Indian soldier to be awarded the Victoria Cross. He Khan. looks splendid. You wouldn't cross him, would you? You would not cross him. He's uh, tough as old boots, this chap. He is. Subhadar Kudadad Khan. Of the Baluch, of the Baluch, uh, uh, Baluch Regiment. And, uh, of course, that regiment's now in the Pakistani army. Right. Uh, but, of course, at the time it was in the, in the Indian army before uh, the partition of India. Yeah. Um, and, um, I mean, he is, he's absolutely magnificent. And he, Isn't he? Again, it's, we wanted to tell the story here because we wanted to remind people of, of the contribution the Indians made. Mm. Uh, Indians, uh, you know, as in pre-partition India to the, in the First World War. They arrived in 1914 and, you know, went straight into action on the Western Front. And, 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 and Kudadad Khan... Uh, you know, showed incredible bravery and went on to serve, you know, long after the First World War. Yeah, and, and some amazing artwork. Absolutely. I mean, that's just stunning, isn't it? A, a picture of, of British cavalry uh, on a march in 1918, you know, so they've still got soft caps, flat, you know, peat caps. This is a um, reminder that cavalry existed right the way through. Right the way through. And in fact, this is, a, this is actually a Canadian cavalry, obviously with the British Empire, Imperial cavalry, if you like, but Canadian uh, this is Lord Strathcona's horse uh, going into action in 1918 uh, to plug a gap during the German uh, spring offensive. And um, uh, we had an exhibition a few years ago of, of Munning's paintings uh, of the First World War because he painted 40 paintings of Canadian cavalry uh, and Canadian forestry corps. And the Queen wanted to come and visit. And uh, she came to visit the exhibition and she stopped at this painting. And I said, I, I said to the Queen, um, you know, look how beautifully kept those horses are. You know, at the end of the war, they've been behind the lines for a lot of that time, but they've been in the mud, uh, you know, on the they're Western Front. They're aren't they? But they're immaculate. It looks like a Boxing Day hunt. And, um, and the reason for that is because, you know, uniquely in the British Army, every horse was owned by a man. You know, every man was assigned a horse. That was his horse, and he looked after it. And, I, and the Queen said, um, yes, I, I did know that. And at the end of the First World War, the soldiers were able to buy their horse out of the army. And I said to Her Majesty, gosh, uh, I didn't know that. And she said, yes, and I learned to ride on one of those horses. And so I realised that... Wow, we, what a connection. Yeah, we had a queen yeah. until last year who, who learned to ride a horse on a World War One charger. That's absolutely amazing, isn't it? Right, and now we head into the Second World War bit. Um, and the first thing that greets me is a, is a pit, um, which will obviously cheer up Al as well. So it's really, there's lots for Al here. Um, 
<laughs> not only are the drums as piats as well yeah that you know again we wanted to tell the story of innovation and of course the piat is a great example of innovation on the cheap uh uh you know how do we take these on um, and we've got some you know we've got some wonderful stories here the first of all we want to do things uh in this gallery again sort of chronologically you yep. know from the defeats in the early years to the turning the turning the tide in a, mm-hmm. in africa to the, to the italian campaign and the, the campaign in northwest europe um, and so th- this first case is really uh, stories from those first few years of the war, right the way up to Dieppe uh, and the Dieppe raid. If there's one uh, story I'd love to, I'd love to sort of tell on this, uh, uh, James, it would be Brigadier um, Peter Young. And he um, was an amazing man, joined the army just before uh, the Second World War um, and uh, ended up in the commandos very early on. Yep. Um, Went to Dieppe. Uh, no, before Dieppe, he was in the Photon Islands. Oh, yeah. Right. Uh, in the yes, raid yes, up yes, there course, yeah. and was awarded a, uh, a military cross. We, he was then awarded a DSO in, in the Dieppe raid. Right. His group of 19 men achieved their objective. Yeah, no, he's key to the whole thing, isn't uh, he? Without, without su- suffering a single casualty. And then, and then he goes on, uh, again, with commandos uh, to earn two military crosses. So he's got two bars in the Italian campaign. He serves in Burma. He serves in, you know, uh, he's got... Every, pretty well every single campaign star yeah. there's going. I'm looking at his uh, gongs here. That's yeah. absolutely amazing. And then he goes on to serve in Palestine after the war. Um, and he's also awarded a Polish uh, a cross of valour, which is you know below their equivalent of the Victoria Cross. It's yep. a very high award for his service with the Second Polish Corps in Italy. Um, uh, and then he, he, he then starts the military history uh, faculty at Sandhurst. I had no idea. Yeah, uh, and he sort of, he becomes the kind of pioneer in many ways of post-war military history here in Britain. Um, Amazing. So he becomes quite a historian in his own right. He does. I mean, he, I've read his autobiography. Yeah, it's a, it's he a, writes a memoir. He does. He does write a memoir. And he, so, he also commanded an Arab Legion in, in Jordan. No. He's awarded a, a Queen's Silver Jubilee medal, medal the year he dies uh, for his contribution, really, for, to, to military history. And I think one of his biggest legacies, and with, you know, with um, um, the Chalk Valley History Festival, you'll, <laughs> you'll appreciate this. But, uh, you know, he's, he really is, is the founding father of, of reenactment in this country because he founds the Sealed Knot. I had no idea. That's absolutely amazing. Um, so he was, a, you know, a real warrior who goes on to make a huge contribution to military history in this country. God, uh, I mean, another thing I used to do is we used to go to sealed knot battles. And in my mind's eye, there were thousands of them. I mean, maybe it was only hundreds, but in my mind's eye as a child, it was thousands. And it was such a big thing. I do. You know, they, people absolutely loved they it. They loved it. I remember going to one in Oxford, at the Siege right. of Oxford. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's smoke everywhere. Yeah, that's and, right. You know, yeah. Horses brilliant. cantering around. Lots of people with beards. Yeah, lots of people with beards. Uh, and, and what's the story behind this one here? This, 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 this red plate says, Command Forward Body. Yeah, okay. Well, that's, that's, a, it's a, lo- that's a lovely object. That, that was uh, Brian Horrocks, who was commanding a battalion uh, of the Middlesex Regiment. Friend of the show. Uh, um, in... Um, uh, in 1940, in the in the uh, campaign in 1940, when they were having to evacuate at Dunkirk, said to his driver, "Right, we're not going to leave those plates behind. Those, those plates identify you know, where the commander is on the vehicle." So the driver took them off the vehicle and put them in his battle dress. Uh, he then ends up in the sea for three hours in the Who's evacuation. The driver? the driver does, but he keeps hold of these th- this plate. I mustn't let go. Uh, he mustn't let it go. Yeah. And obviously, gets onto a boat, gets back to England, and then uh, the plates reunited with Brian Horrocks. So, yeah, in a way, I, I love that object because. It, yeah. Yeah. It shows the the commitment and the loyalty of that driver. It also shows the kind of attention to detail that Brian Horrocks must have had as a commander, mm-hmm. and it, it shows that the sort of you know the pride they've There's got. A, a bit of defiance there. A defiant. Isn't there? There's a defiance yeah. there, and you, you know, know and I, I'll need this because I'll need this for another day, and I'm not letting the 
Jerry have it? Not, exactly. No, Jerry's not going to have this. And I mean, who knows what happened to that object? But I'd love to think that somewhere on the line it ended up back in northwest Europe. Uh, early tank overalls as well? Yes. And I mean, the innovation. I mean, I mean look at that. I mean, James, yep. no, one, no one can tell you anything about tank overalls. It's got some interesting kind of sort of cinches in it and all sorts of... Sort it's of so contemporary, isn't it? Fashion touches to yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so contemporary. Amazing. We're now looking at a silk map. Yeah, this is, a, this is an escape, escape map. Uh, and um, this is from uh, an extraordinary man who was of uh, Italian extraction uh, called Riccomini. Um, hmm. James or Giacomo's Italian name would have been yep. uh, Riccomini and he was a soldier you know joined just before the war again and finds himself uh, you know working with, 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 with special forces he ends up in, the, in prison with David Sterling up in Liguria near Genoa and when Italy surrenders the Germans do not want to let these prisoners go and so they put them in a train to Austria and they manage to cut a hole in the back of the cattle wagon that they're in Brilliant. and they escape um, and they escape um, and they find uh, refuge with, with partisans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Iacomini um, uh, works with the partisans in the Rosano Valley up near, ah, up yes. north of Lucca. You wrote Gordon that, Lett. Yeah. Gordon Lett, you wrote that wonderful forward. Well, he uh, did that. He wrote that memo just after the war called Rosano, didn't he? That's right. Valley in Flames. That's Fantastic right. book. Yeah, amazing. Um, and yeah, you, I mean, I, I, was, um, I picked that up because of your forward and I thought <laughs> I, I must read it. And it's a brilliant book. But he was one of the heroes who worked with Italian partisans uh, fighting the Germans behind the lines. He then, and then at the end of that um, campaign, he, 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 he extracts with a, the best part of a squadron of SAS uh, across the Allied lines uh, uh, and then uh, sadly dies at, right at the end of the war doing an, an SAS operation uh, in the final weeks of the campaign in Italy. And that's his fake ID card made for him by the partisans. And I think we wanted... I've got to say, it looks pretty impressive. It's a very impressive card. And I think we wanted to put this out there because... Again, we wanted to recognise not only his contribution, but, of course, the courage of the Italians mm-hmm. uh, that, that worked with him, you know, the partisans, the people who made that fake ID card. We often think that this was a, a war fought by just soldiers alone, but there would have been people in Italian villages you know, giving him refuge, tending him when he was wounded. He had a very badly wounded foot. And so we need to recognise that you know, this, was a, this was a war where so many people played a part and some of the, some of the heroes right. will never be known. Yeah, it's, a, 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 it's just an amazing map, isn't it? it? Really is. So we've got a D-Day original D-Day map of, of of the sword area, and one of the things whenever I see these maps, so these are the maps that were issued to the to the troops, and you can see uh, well, the, the, you know, the sort of um, the, the the officers, and these are maps that are put together on the basis of of aerial photography and reconnaissance, and you can see literally every German machine gun post, wire obstacle, um, minefield is all kind of listed on that, and and. It, they're just incredibly, incredibly detailed. And what you can see just below the, 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 the name of Wiestraham is um, the, the, the strong point that caused so much havoc where Colonel Krug was, Hillman, um, and caused so much problem for the Suffolks and the... Was it the Norfolks or the Warwicks? I can't remember. But, but you know, from 3rd Division landing on Sword Beach. And you can see how extensive it is. And actually, the interesting thing about that is they were slightly caught short by that. But you can see from this map, it, it is very extensive. It's very extensive. It's probably the best sighted, constructed, defensive strong point on the entire Normandy coast. And it's just the misfortune of those who landed on Sword Beach to... Um, and Steve um, Stephen Fisher's doing a book about Sword, Sword Beach because he always feels that, that he's got a he's a, a started off as a sort of archaeologist and a naval historian, but has found that once you start marrying what was going on on the you know records and accounts of what was going on on the ground with the naval records, a quite different picture emerges. 
um, and he feels that the Sword Beach story hasn't been properly told. And actually, that probably extends to all of them. And that's why here what we wanted to do, and, and Sophie's found these amazing objects, is we wanted mm. to tell the story of, of you know, what, what did it take to get those men onto the beach and then off the beaches. Yeah. And so we've got a number of objects here. Yeah, what uh, are these two, these like, like flags? Square, they're sort of square bits of linen, one red, one green. Well, they were used by Lieutenant Kenneth Baxter. His um, unit, his group was, um, was tasked to find an exit right. uh, from Sword Beach for the incoming troops. Right. Um, but he found himself, by the time he reached the top of the beach, he found that it was only himself and his signaler that were left um, not killed or wound, severely wounded. Right. Um, and he didn't have any equipment with him because it was lost with the, the rest of the group. So he was saying that we didn't even have a shovel between the two of us right. to open an exit. Um, so he looked around the beach and he realized that surely the Germans might have left, must have left some sort of route between the minefield and uh, like their garrison through the minefield to the beach. Mm-hmm. And he looked around, he found some footprints on the sand. So he realized that that was a route through the minefield. And then he um, signaled the troops in. He tried it. He signaled the troops in with his green flags. And, um, and that's the flag? That's the flag, yeah. Amazing. I mean, that, I, that, I find that flag one of the most moving objects in this gallery because mm. it, it's with that flag the liberation of Europe begins. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Well, here we've got a good old Denison Smock. Very happy to see that, obviously. Yeah, um, Timothy Hall was parachuted into, parachuted into Arnhem, but um, as you can see, he was wounded um, uh, at the battle um, by machine gun fire. You can see the Ooh. bullet holes at the back of his Denison yes. smock. Oh, my goodness me. Um, you can see that some of them have been darned because he, while he was in the hospital, he realized that he would probably need that when he was a prisoner of war. Um, huh. So he mended it in order to be able to use it while a prisoner. And we also have um, a letter. That, uh, yeah, it is. It's you can properly see the damage i can only imagine what yeah what it would have been like i I mean it's absolutely it's just it's completely scuffed out you can see a hole at the back well you can see several holes actually a big line across the back which has all been i mean that's incredible isn't it Mm. wow he was eventually liberated Mm -hmm. by the americans of course um we have a letter written to his parents in the collection talking about how you know the jubilation basically at seeing the americans uh, this is a this is a message, uh, um, a message note. So, so what happens is the radio would come in, and, and, and the the um, person who was deciphering the, the the message would would write it down on a piece of paper from Urquhart to Browning. So, if you see the date and the time, it's at nine fifteen in the evening of the twenty fourth of September. Yes. And if you read what it says, it shows the desperation. Must warn you unless physical contact in strength is made with us early 25th September consider it unlikely we can hold out all ranks now exhausted full stop for um, in caps full stop lack of I think it says lack of water ammo rations I'm not sure if it's in the right order it says hi it stops there but the message carries on so this is the first bit of the message and the message carries on the high rate of officer casualties 
So this Amazing. is the day before they actually had to withdraw. Incredible to see all these original artifacts and to know that they were there. They were actually worn, written, issued, used in the Second World War. I mean, just absolutely incredible. And we got a, we got a radio suitcase, you know, the ones that you would sort of take onto the metro and hope that you won't stop by the Gestapo. I mean, the thing is, that just feels heavy to me. It does, it does. It looks it does. heavy, it feels heavy, and the opportunity to be, for being caught and being in mega trouble... It is extremely looks very heavy. High. It is extremely heavy, and is it? quite a lot of you can say um, that from experience of women. Yes, because we had to put it in the case, and it was really heavy. But quite a few of the wireless operators were women, mm-hmm. so this was supposed to be in a suitcase to make you inconspicuous. But if you see how heavy it is, it wouldn't be like yes, exactly. It wouldn't be like a Excuse light me, madam, thing you to look carry a little around. Bit laden down. What, you, what have you got? Oh, nothing. Just you know. <laughs> But again, it is incredible if you think the life expectancy of a wireless operator was like six weeks. Mm. And, and while we're on the subject of sort of special operations, uh, uh, James, this is um, um, a, a, a tunic of a rather remarkable soldier. Uh, um, colonel, as he was, uh, eventually, uh, Ronald Grierson, who was a German Jew mm-hmm. uh, who fled Germany before the Second World War, came to England, was then interned. Uh, when the war started, because he was a German, yep. and then eventually persuaded them to sort of let him out and, and joined the SAS and served in the SAS during the um, during the Second World War and and beyond, um, and was an incredibly brave brave man. Um, and we wanted to, to really have this out because we wanted to again recognise that contribution of mm. of those of those uh, uh, those German Jews who fled Germany and then, if you like, took the fight to Hitler um, um, as part of the British Army. And there, yeah, it's there were a number of them. Isn't it? Um, and then this last one over here, this, mm-hmm. this rather wonderful sketch of a of a of a, of a sepoy, um, which Sophie found in you know in the collection, obviously, and wanted to bring out. And Sophie, what, tell that story because it's a it's a wonderfully moving story, isn't it? Yeah, it's um, sepoy Lal was captured in North Africa and was sent to a prisoner of war camp in Austria. Um, he escaped and spent nine months wandering around in Austria and Italy trying <laughs> to reach... Nine months. Nine months at that time um, on his own, yeah. um, behind enemy lines. Uh, how do you do, I mean, it's hard enough for a European to hide, but an I, Indian... Exactly. But he managed to find um, and report to the British lines at Pescara at some point after nine months That's of amazing. wandering. So and what ha- happened to him after the war? He survived, don't you? Presumes he survived, India. but we don't really know. Probably served on the Indian Army after independence, yeah. possibly. But, I mean, he, he went from Austria to Pescara. Yeah, in Italy, amazing. without being again, people must have helped him along the way. Yeah. And and James, I mean, perhaps you know the, the trauma of the Second World War is is sort of encapsulated by that last little object, which is the medical kit of the medical officer who was with the unit that liberated Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. Oh goodness um, me! Yeah. So uh, again, just reminder to yeah. uh, everyone what, what we were fighting for really in that war, mm. uh, in in terms of you know freeing Europe from the tyranny of of of, of, of Nazi Germany. Um, well, I always I, I return over and over and over again to that speech by Churchill in 1940, where he says, you know, if we if we if we don't stop this, we will descend into a new dark age. 
made more sinister by the perversions of modern science. And, you know, he was so, it was such a prescient comment because, of course, that's exactly what was happening. You know, you think of you know, Zyklon B and, and sort of horrible weapons that are being developed during that six-year period. That's yeah. absolutely extraordinary. It is. Here is the, the Cold War gallery. Yeah. Again, again, this continuity of British Army's contribution in Europe. Yeah. The long vigil, if you like, uh, Estonia, against the Soviet Union. Bosnia, Kosovo, Germany... Yeah, Cyprus, of course. Yeah, again, the European Poland. security. Uh, yeah, you know, this this ongoing commitment. I mean, it's you know we are a European power, and uh, our army has deployed in Europe for you know for hundreds of years, and this sort of brings it up to date. Uh, but this 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 gallery itself goes up to the sort of cold, you know the end of the Cold War, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, and then if we go around the corner here, yep. we we bring it right back up to date with the resurgent Russian threat. Yeah, and of course whether it's you know whether it's uh, Louis the Fourteenth. All the way through uh, to to Putin, you know, the British army does not like, uh, and the British government does not like, uh, you know, to see the stability of Europe uh, um, uh, wrecked by tyrants. And so the British army, again, plays its part in, in tackling these threats to our security. And so whether it's training Ukrainian soldiers uh, between 19, uh, 2016 and, uh, and, and 2023, uh, or uh, indeed training them now, mm-hmm. uh, or our deployment forward in Poland and the Baltic states, this, this, you know, this commitment of the British army to Europe has, is part of our national story. It's part of our DNA. It's part of who we are. And so in, these, in this gallery... Um, uh, what, you know, what Sophie and the team have, have uh, I think, done brilliantly is, is, is show that continuity uh, uh, of the story, but also the distinct aspects of each chapter of that story. And so, James, it's been so thank you for coming to see us today. Oh, no, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And I just urge everyone to come. It really is an absolutely fantastic exhibition and, and brilliant that it's a permanent exhibition. And there's always so much to see at this museum. Um, and I just think you do it so well. I think your whole ethos is absolutely spot on. And, um, you know, congratulations. I hope it's a rip-roaring success, which I'm sure it will be. But everyone who's listening, if you've ever got an idle moment in, um, and you're in London or you just fancy a day out, this is one of your places you should be making a hot foot to. All right, well, thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, thank you, Justin. Thank you, Sophie. Cheerio for now. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. 
I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.